I'm glad you all set up. Everyone is moving back, so I was going to move out in the back, but I'm going to move. move back now. You don't get to sit in the back and hide from me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, uh, we ask that you would be powerfully present in the preaching of your word today. We pray that as we interact with your word, that you would morph and change and transform our hearts so that it changes the way we think and it transforms the way we live, that as we, the church in the wild here in this culture, uh, would, would not live in fear, but would live with bold love and bold faith. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. 1 Peter three thirteen through the end of the chapter. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What's your plan? What's your plan when because of your faith, someone treats you badly? What's your plan when because of your faith, someone does wrong to you? What are you going to do when someone, because your relationship with Jesus Christ looks down on you or takes away an opportunity or says something wrong about you? What's your plan? Well, Peter throughout the book has been telling us that the plan is when we're treated bad, that we should do good. Whenever we're treated bad, we do good. So when you're treated bad in your family, you do good. When you're treated bad in your neighborhood, you serve. When you're treated bad in the city, you do good there as well. And sometimes when you're treated bad and you do good, that changes the bad that's done to you. Sometimes people will look at the good that you're doing and saying, you know what, I'm wrong here. They're doing good. I'm the one doing bad. And so I'm going to stop doing bad. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes doing good does no good in the sense that people will treat you bad even if you do good. You do something for them. You love them. You serve them. And they continue to treat you bad. Peter says, who's to harm you if you are zealous for good? But then he says, listen, some of you will suffer for righteousness sake. You will do good, but people will continue to treat you bad. I read a story about a college ministry. And in this college ministry, 
Um, they welcomed everybody, but like every other organization, they had requirements for who could be in leadership. And they were requirements according to Christian values. Well, someone complained and said, no, that's discriminatory. You can't keep someone out of leadership because they don't hold to your values. And the organization said, said wait, every organization has values that you must abide by if you're going to be in that organization, and we do the same thing. We're Christians, so we say that our leaders have to hold to Christian values. But we don't turn anyone away. Anyone can be part of this. Yet the university still pushed in and said, no, that's discrimination. So the leader of the Christian organization said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have good conversations with them. We're going to speak winsomely. We're not going to be belligerent. We're not going to be mean. We're not going to be evil. And they'll see, they'll see that we're not like these crazy religious zealots. They'll see that we care about the university, that we care about racial reconciliation. They'll see that we care about social justice. They'll see that we care about culture. We enjoy culture. And as we do good, they'll take away this, uh, you know, this requirement. They didn't take away the requirement. The leader of the Christian organization said, I thought a winsome faith would win Christians a place at the table. I thought that by doing good and speaking good, it would win us a place at the table. And then she said, but I was wrong. And that organization was asked to leave campus. They were treated badly. They did good, but it didn't work. It didn't work. So what's your plan when you're treated badly and you do good, but it does no good? You continue to be treated badly. Now, some of you might be here exploring the Christian faith and you say, you know, I don't think Christians actually do good. I, I think they're kind of rotten and they can be belligerent and belittle people and disrespect, be disrespectful and disingenuous. And I, and I get all that. There are Christians out there who are like that. But let me ask you this. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're exploring the Christian faith, um, do you know what Christians are actually supposed to do? Do you know how Christians are supposed to live? I mean, you can write Christianity off because of bad examples of living out Christianity, or you can actually see what Jesus teaches. Do, do you know the plan for what Christians are supposed to do when they're treated bad? Well, here's what uh, Peter tells us in this passage, that here's the plan. It's to have your heart ruled, it's to have your mouth respond, and it's to have your mind rooted. Hearts ruled by Christ your mouths responding with hope, and your minds rooted in God's plan. First of all, let's look at hearts ruled by Christ. You and I know that at times we can be afraid of those who might oppose us for our faith. Uh, fear is a natural human response, and with all the ways that there's pressures on Christians and Christianity, it's easy for us to be afraid. That's a natural human response. Response, But yet Peter says here, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't let your heart be ruled by fear. See, our natural tendency when we're opposed is fight or flight. It, it can be let's do something back to them or let's run away and not engage. Let's get away from them when they're doing bad to us. But Peter says here, have no fear. Do you know that the number one command in the Bible is do not be afraid? In the NIV, it shows up over 70 times. And that doesn't include variations that switch the words around. The phrase do, the phrase, do not be afraid appears 70 times. See, it's not really about 
being tough. Like I'm not, nothing scares me. I'm not tough or I'm not afraid. It's really about understanding that we often are afraid. And in those commands in scripture, it's always followed by something about God. Do not be afraid because. What does Peter say? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Don't be afraid of them. Instead, let your heart be ruled by Jesus. Now, that's not saying, oh, I'm supposed to follow Jesus, so I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just going to be tough. Rather, it's to let the glory of Jesus and the character of Jesus and the power of Jesus saturate your heart so that it changes the way that you respond. You no longer live in fear, but you live with your affection set on Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus came to earth. He gave up his glory, but he returned to heaven in glory. So let your heart be saturated by the fact that Christ is glorious. And while he was here, he showed incredible love and compassion in dying on the cross. Jesus' character should saturate your heart. And on that cross, he defeated death. And he rose from the grave. And he showed incredible power. And at the same time, he has the numbers of the hair on your head counted. And as you begin to consider who Jesus is and his glory and his character and his power, it drives out the fear of man because you see that he is weightier than any one person, than any organization that could come against you. And it allows you to be bold and powerful and filled with faith, not because you just decide to be, but because Christ is ruling in your heart. The first part of the plan is to let your hearts be ruled by Christ. In order that you might be able to respond with your mouth. In order that our mouths might respond with hope. Peter goes on to say, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. There's this sense that we're actually supposed to be prepared to speak. There should be words in the, in the chamber of our mouth. St. Francis said, preach Christ at all times. If necessary, use words. And what Peter is saying here is you've got to use words. Our lives and our words, our lives about Jesus and our words of Jesus go together. You can't choose one or the other. A man named Greg was going through the drive-thru at McDonald's, and as he pulled up to the window to pay, the woman took his change and he looked at her and he noticed a little necklace that had a cross on it. And he said, hey, uh, I really like the cross. And, and the McDonald's lady said, well, thank you. And I like the person who died on that cross for my sins. And I love the person who rose from the grave after having died on the cross. She was ready. She was prepared. She could have just said thank you. But she just said something simple about Jesus in response. We're to be prepared with our mouths in order that we might make a defense to anyone. That word defense is the, where we get the word apologetics. And apologetics has to do with using reason and logic to show the validity of the Christian faith. It's like, it's like presenting a case for Christianity. Because there's so many cases against Christianity right now. I went downtown again and met my friend, and his question's always the same. He says, 
Pastor, how's God? And uh, I said, uh, he's good. And he goes, I don't know. The world's just a mess. And every time I just explain to him that, that the mess is because of us as humans, because in Adam we have sinned. But God is in the process of making all things new. He's restoring all things. And one day he'll come and set all things right. And then he said to me, I, th- I think this is how the conversation developed. He brought up the idea of, of hell. How do you deal with that? And I was forced to make a defense. Now, no one likes to talk about hell. It's an awkward topic. But I said, look, you and I know, and your question to me is, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You acknowledge that, and I acknowledge that. Hell is about God banishing all evil forever and making all things new so that there's no longer evil and wickedness and oppression but he'll be face-to-face living with people, wiping every tear from their eyes, living in the new city where Jesus is the light of the city. Now, no one likes the idea of hell, but I asked him, I said, do you have a better way that all things are going to be made right? You don't have one. But Christianity does. Now, we might not like it, but it offers a solution to the problem of evil in the world, saying that we'll be banished one day forever. Now, he kind of looked at me and shook his head a little bit, but that's the situation where we're, we're forced to have words to defend the faith, to defend the faith. Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, it sounds, it sounds a little bit like you're trying to convert people. And in this culture, no, 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 we don't convert people. And I would say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. It's exactly what I'm trying to do. And anyone actually is trying to convert people to their spiritual perspective as well. Everyone is defending their own spiritual beliefs. Even if you said, uh, what's common, you know, um, all paths lead to God. And we're all just going up this mountain and we don't see it and you should really believe that. Well, you're trying to convert me to your spiritual view as well. Everyone's trying to convert each other to a spiritual view, except Christians are actually honest about it. Christians say, no, we really want you to know the hope of Jesus. And that's why we defend the faith to anyone who asks us. Anyone who asks us. There's this sense that people should be asking us and curious about what we believe because of the way we live. See, it is words, but it's also the way we live our lives. John Tyson says, far too often Christians spend time working on the answer for a question people are simply not asking because our, our lives look identical to those around us. We're, we're called to speak about Jesus, but we're called to also live differently. So it draws curiosity so that people actually ask questions. And we have to make sure that we're answering the questions that people are actually asking. In Pew Research, which is a company that does Uh, research on the religious landscape in the United States. This is what they're projecting uh, in 2032 for church attendance. You can see in 1987, the majority of the U.S. uh, went to church. And in 2002, 2017, it continues to drop. And by 2032, it looks like it's somewhere around 30% of people will attend uh, church. While the church attendance is declining, what is increasing are the nuns. 
not like the Catholic nuns, but the nuns are those who would say, I have no religious affiliation. None. I have no spiritual beliefs. You see, in 1987, 2002, 2017, by 2032, the nuns outnumber the church attenders. So that's about half of the country will be none. No religious affiliation. But also growing with that are the duns. So if the nuns are people who have no affiliation, the duns are people who have walked away from church or have a decreasing interest in Christianity or faith. And what we see is while that percentage was really low in 1987, it matches church attendance by 2032. Look at our city. This is roughly Hollywood, Hallandale, Dania. This, is the, uh, this would be the, the Duns. Decreased involvement with their faith. The areas that are red are high percentage areas where there's a decreased involvement with faith, and the yellow areas are low. Uh, look at the places where there's almost 30% of people who are decreased involvement with faith. What questions are they asking? Why are they leaving? Are, are they saying, does Christianity make a real difference in the world? I don't see it making a real difference in the world, so I'm done. Are they saying, is Christianity a religion for white men? Are they saying, I don't think we need religion? What questions are they asking? We need to learn those questions and be able to engage them with answers. And then look at the nuns. Again, red is a high percentage of those who are nuns, and yellow is a low percentage. But what questions are they asking? Maybe they're asking, uh, faith? No, no, because science. Doesn't science overrule faith? There's no reason I'd be interested in Christianity. Wasn't religion used to oppress people? Or does Christianity actually promote human flourishing? What questions are these people asking? We have to learn those questions and be able to respond to them. We have to learn those questions and respond to them. You might say, John, I, you know, that seems kind of overwhelming. There's a ton of questions out there, and it seems to me like there's new questions that come up every year that people are asking. Well, first of all, when Peter writes this, he's talking to you people. So he's saying that you're in this together. It's not our responsibility as individuals to know the answer to every person's question. But as a church, we're called to engage those questions together. And each of you in each of your different spheres is going to engage different questions. But part of this, remember, we're church in the wild. We are outsiders. We are those who are in exile in our world. And our posture right now is to continue to engage the questions even though the religious landscape in the United States has a decreasing church attendance. This is why we're here. We're here to engage people with faith. We're here to answer their questions. I mean, that was the whole point of this letter that, Paul, that Peter sent to the exiles. He was teaching them how to be the creative minority, how to be redemptively subversive in a majority culture, how to be the church in the wild. We're called to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are resurrection people. We have the new life of Jesus who's kicked open that tomb and has given us new life. We don't live the way we used to because of what Jesus has done. He has filled us with the power of the Spirit. And our job is to be resurrection people and share the hope that we have in our city. We're resurrection people who want other people to have the hope 
that we have. We want them to be part of the renewal of all things. We want them to be in the new city with us. And so we're called to share the reason for the hope that we have, even if the religious landscape in the United States is changing. We're not called to hide. We're not called to fight. We're called to engage. But to do so with gentleness and with respect. See, what you say is just as important as how you say it to people. With gentleness and respect. Now, I know some of you tend to be naturally gentle and naturally respectful, maybe even a little bit timid. And as I talk about engaging people with their questions, you're like, I don't know, man. <laughs> that seems kind of radical. I'm, I, I would just rather kind of be friends with people and love on them. But you have to understand something. If your disposition is already gentle and respectful, you're halfway there. You don't have to know the answers to all the questions to be able to engage people honestly. Because as someone who's gentle and respectful, you will winsomely be able to engage people with the truth of the gospel. John Bingham wrote in the Telegraph in 2014 an article about people engaging with Christians. And he asked a simple question. Have you engaged with a Christian about Jesus Christ? He asked people who weren't Christians if they'd engaged with a Christian and talked about Jesus Christ. And out of the people who said, yes, I've engaged, he found that only 20% of them wanted to know more about Jesus after the conversation with Christians. One out of five people had a conversation with a Christian and said, yeah, that was intriguing. I want to know more. And almost one out of five people felt positive towards Jesus Christ. In other words, the majority of people had an interaction with a Christian about Jesus and felt negative about Jesus Christ after the interaction with the Christian. So if you're naturally gentle and naturally respectful, we need you. The world needs you. Because gentle and respectful is the character of our Lord, Jesus. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And so just because you don't know what to say, don't count yourself out, because we need you to be gentle and respectful. Two days ago, we were walking out of our house. It was my family day, and we, I opened the front door. And as I opened the front door and walked out with my kids, right where Jay was, was uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses coming towards the door. And it kind of surprised me. I, and I actually enjoy talking with those who are Jehovah's Witnesses, um, but they, they said, hello, how are you doing, sir? I said, I'm good, how are you? And I've talked with Jehovah's Witnesses many times. I know, I know what they believe, and I know a lot of times in those conversations, it just ends up being like this. Um, but I said, look, hey, we're leaving now, and I don't have time to talk, but you're welcome to come back. You're welcome to come back, and I'd love to talk to you. And they said, well, you, do you want to watch Tower Magazine? I said, sure, I'll take a watch Tower Magazine. And I felt this nudge to say something, but to say it with gentleness and respect. And so I said, hey, you're welcome to come back here and we can talk further. But I just want to, you to know, I want you to go and I want you to look back 100 years ago at some of the prophecies that Jehovah's Witnesses made, that the leaders of the Jehovah's Witness faith made that never came true. Go look at that and come back and we'll chat. See, defending the faith, but with gentleness and respect. Now, hopefully they felt respected and they felt like I was gentle. And if they come back and tell me otherwise, I'll come back and confess that I have more, more to learn in terms of gentleness and respect. But the, the, the call here is to share the faith, 
but do it in a way that honors people and doesn't put them down and doesn't put them down so that we might have a good conscience. See, our, mo- our mouths are connected to our hearts, that we might talk with gentleness and respect towards people. Uh, it's one way of saying it is that we need to uh, talk rightly to people as we're talking about the faith, but also that we talk and walk in a way that matches up. We're, we're humble people who confess that we're sinners, we're not self-righteous, And we talk that way. We talk honestly and openly and humbly so that we can have a good conscience as we share the faith. A man was part of a service project in the Compton neighborhood of Los Angeles, and they were partnering with a local church in order to go out and just help clean up, help build a house, help renovate this house. And and there was about 50 people, and they were all wearing yellow shirts that said volunteer on them. And they were going through the neighborhood, and they'd worked on the house almost all day, and it had a visible difference to it. And as they were walking back to this house towards the end of the day, they crossed this in front of this house, and there was a woman working in her yard. And she began asking questions. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And as they were talking about these questions, the husband dropped the weed whacker and came over, and he wanted to engage the volunteers as well. And when he heard what they were doing, and we looked down the street and saw the house and could see a visible difference, he was moved. And he asked this Christian man, this Christian volunteer, I love your heart. Where can I get a heart like yours? And the man said back to him, well, we got our hearts from Jesus. And he would be glad to give you one like his as well. A willingness to have our lives match up with our words and our words match up with our lives not be afraid, but to engage people with words of hope. Have our mouths responding with words of hope. When you do good, but people still treat you bad, the plan is to have your hearts ruled by Christ, your mouths responding with hope. And sometimes that will stop the bad treatment against you. Sometimes that will stop the bad treatment against you. Peter says that sometimes it will shame people. Like I said earlier, they see you doing good and they're treating you bad and they say, I'm going to stop. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes your good deeds actually irritate people more and they come after you even harder. But Peter tells us what you need to do next and is have your mind rooted in God's plan. Have your mind rooted in God's plan. Peter writes, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you're in the midst of suffering for doing good, God's will is not that you do evil to get out of the suffering. God's will is that you continue to do good, even if it means that you're stuck in the suffering. Now that's a hard word. That's a hard word. It's not necessarily that God wants us to suffer. It's that God wants us to do good even when evil is done against us. And in order to do that, you have to understand a couple things. You have to have your minds rooted in God's plan. And here's the first thing that you have to understand. Suffering and blessing can go together. They're not mutually exclusive. What Peter says is, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He's parroting the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter's telling us to have our minds rooted in the fact that even though we suffer now, we will be blessed later because we did suffer now. And part of the blessing is the knowledge that your suffering in the now isn't pointless. You're able to get to your destination because you know that the blessing is coming even though you're suffering now. So it's hard. Being under someone's thumb, having someone treat you bad because you're doing good, it makes you feel defeated. It makes you feel defeated in this life. But that's where Peter most pointedly, most pointedly shows us Christ. We have to understand that in God's plan, things often appear to only be unjust, to only be about suffering, to have the appearance of defeat. And yet that's the very thing that God uses for victory. In verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And what Peter's telling us is that when Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, it looked like defeat. I mean, Jesus died on the cross in shame as a criminal. He was under unjust suffering. He was put in a tomb. And yet, that was part of God's plan for victory. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we were reconciled to God. We were brought into relationship with him. The sin that had separated us from him was washed away. And as you begin to understand that part of God's plan is to use things that look like a defeat for victory, you can understand that God ultimately used the ultimate unjust suffering to atone for your sins. So that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, could atone for you as someone who's unrighteous. So that you as a rebel could be restored to God. And part of our calling as Christians is to imitate Christ's pattern. To receive that atonement, to receive salvation from him. But then when people do bad against you for doing good, to imitate Jesus. Peter goes on in verse 20 and says, 19 and 20, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this passage is really... That's uh, translated a, a myriad of ways, but I think here's what we can say for sure. Um, Jesus is so victorious. He's victorious over the spirit world. He's victorious over all time. Jesus is victorious. And then when Peter talks about baptism, he's not saying that when you get baptized, that's what actually saves you. No, he's helping us see that our baptism is in some ways like Noah. Noah, who was laughed at, who followed God, and yet was treated badly. Noah, who just had a small group of people, just eight people with him in the ark, but through the waters was saved. By God's plan, judgment passed over him. 
And as Noah and his family were saved through the waters of judgment, pointing to their final salvation, your baptism represents that you have been saved from judgment, pointing to your final salvation. See, just as Noah was ostracized, just as Noah lived rightly and yet was treated badly, you might be that as well, but your baptism is a symbol that you are saved and that you are committed to following Christ and points to you to your final salvation. It reminds you, your baptism reminds you that you have been united to Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he will set all things right. He will show himself to be victorious and you get to be part of that victory. He's already been resurrected. Jesus' death appeared to be defeat, but in his resurrection, according to God's plan, it was victory. And then Peter says he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ is ruling and reigning now at the right hand of God. And as you do good but are treated badly, you're to remember that your leader, your king, is in power. In fact, that word subjected that Peter uses, all things are subjected to him. It's the same word that he's used earlier when he said, submit. Do you remember he said that a couple times? Submit to your masters, submit to your husbands, because all things are in submission to Jesus. You may be under someone's thumb, but they are all under the power of Jesus. What gives you the power to walk through hard things even when people treat you bad, is knowing that Jesus Christ is in victory and he has power over all things. So root your mind in God's plan. Remember that times you will do good and you are treated badly, but that's where you need to remember the story of Christ. God uses the appearance of little things and defeat to ultimately bring victory. Remember that Peter is writing this. Peter, who in the courtyard when Jesus was arrested and as he watched Jesus' trial, he didn't, he didn't have a heart ruled by Christ. He had a heart ruled by fear. And he didn't share words of hope. He shared words that were lying. I don't know Jesus. I don't know who he is. And he really had no idea what God was doing to him. It seemed like Jesus was being defeated. But yet as he witnessed the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, he changes. He changes to the point where, where he is arrested himself. These are the kind of things he says. And when they had brought them, including Peter, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you, Peter and apostles, not to teach in the name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And then listen to how Peter responds. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Our hearts are ruled by Christ, not by fear. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. He's in charge. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. Peter was on trial for doing good and was treated badly for speaking about Jesus. But as he witnessed 
the story of Christ. As his mind was rooted in God's plan, he was able to deliver words that spoke about the hope of the resurrection and have his very heart ruled by Christ. Friends, when you're treated bad, continue to do good. Continue to do good. Have your hearts ruled by Christ. Have your minds rooted in God's plan and respond with words of hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for these things that are true. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, you are victorious and you are in power. And though we often feel that we are poor and powerless, we are rich because we know you. We ask that you would encourage hearts this morning, that you would give them boldness to share their faith and to talk about who you are. We pray that together we would be a church that witnesses uh, to Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, would you stand and sing with me? This message was um, really good for me, actually. Yesterday, I went to the beach with my family, and uh, there were some people um, doing street preaching. They had this big sign, and it was like, you will be judged, you know. And we were kind of just like, you know. And I could say that it was because they weren't being gentle or because, you know, there's different ways. But if I'm honest, it was because I was fearful. Because I didn't want to be looked at like people were looking at them. And if you're like me, you have moments that you can think of where you chose fear. Where you chose to deny Jesus in front of people. And I just want to take this time to corporately repent of those times and lay them down before Jesus. So what we do in New City is we get in small groups. Left or right side, whatever you guys want to do. And let's just get together and pray. Ask God, confess, and ask God for forgiveness for the times that we chose fear. Ask God to fill us with his love so that we may go boldly.